And welcome back to Hangry and Horny with my love, Judy Real. This is part three of a series, and it's been quite a journey, quite a long and ongoing story of, of what you've been through, Judy, in terms of your recovery from abuse and trauma. I have to forgive uh, myself for being a, a ranting lunatic. I sound a bit, in my opinion, self-righteous in the last episode and uh, just learned quite a bit about, you know, we talked about listening and I found that I was just like monologuing forever, right? And I just wanted to you know, give you a chance to get further deeper into your story and, and you know, the, the repetitive loops that you found yourself even after, you know, being booted out of a cult. And you had mentioned that you found yourself back into a similar situation with your marriage, your first marriage. And, um, you know, we just want to hear more of that and how you were able to see the pattern that was repeating itself and how you were able to notice the similar symptoms is just different scenario and how you've been able to rehabilitate and heal from that. Thank you for having me back. Um, straight in. So, Uh, I quite quickly um, got together with my ex-husband um, at the end of being bitted out of the cult church. Um, we had tried to go out when we when I was still there, and he you, like for people to know this was your first husband. First husband. Yeah, you weren't married and then divorced and got back together. You were married for the first time with this fellow. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, they didn't approve of him because he wasn't within that organization. Um, and they kind of blamed it on other different things. And yeah, they didn't approve of it. So we kind of went out for a bit. And then I basically was forced to to break it off. And um, then I gave in and went back out again with him. And I'm not too sure exactly when the whole process was, but got booted out. We got like kind of properly together then. Got on really great. Really nice guy. Met him at work. Um, he was kind of struggling a little bit. He wasn't from the UK, he was on a visa. Um, and I didn't really think we would have much in common um, because he was from India. So I didn't, you know, in my ignorance, I have to say, I just assumed he was Hindu and he wasn't, he was Christian. Um, I'd had a Christian background. Parents had been um, ministers within the church over in, in India. So um, yeah, we just, we kind of got on well and wanted to give him a hand and, just usual Judith oh I can help and I can help you with this and that and the other and just we got closer and closer um and you know going out was great uh and there was a problem on his visa uh later on and he had to go back to India um and it took quite a while to try and get him back again um and we ended up basically bringing getting engaged quicker and getting married quicker to enable us to get a fiance visa to get him back over um 
and that was all okay we you know, overcame a lot of things and I kind of felt like oh this is a good test because we're having to go through all these hoops to get this to happen and we worked so well together as a team and it really really seemed to work well together um, and the whole work you know distance you know calling every day getting to really know somebody on a phone all the time rather than being distracted by going out all the time or doing things together you know it was quality time on the phone I really felt like you know, this was the guy, this was the guy and um, everything was good and got married and within a few days it was like something's not right. He wasn't happy. Um, there were even signs actually on the marriage day that he wasn't happy um, but he kind of batted off and then within a couple of weeks it was like something's really wrong, something's really wrong and I automatically assumed it was my fault. That was kind of my default position. Something's wrong, it's my fault what did I do? What did I say? What didn't I do? What didn't I say? Um, and then going into how can I fix it? And I would be always on the fix it mode. Um, you know, are you okay? Is everything okay? Can I get you something? You know, just like over and above. Um, but that's pretty much how I ran. That's how I worked as a little girl. You know, I thought as a little girl, when things were wrong with dad, that it was my fault. You know, he, had, you know, made it quite clear that I was you know sometimes his favorite and that I could make him happy so that I thought okay that's my job to make dad happy from a very young age for about four years old so whenever dad wasn't happy whenever he was being violent or abusive I was like what did I do wrong um and would overanalyze from a very young age overanalyzing everything I was doing everything I was saying and being really critical of myself and I just always took on that responsibility. And when dad was out of line, particularly with mom and my sisters, I felt so bad. Like I felt like I was carrying the guilt of that and it was my fault and I needed to fix it. So I never really got out of that mindset. Um, and that foundation, that blueprint was there. So then I just kept on repeat on repeat, you know, things would go wrong at work. Um, and I would assume it was my fault and then you know, go over and above to try and fix it. So I just kept doing that in lots of different scenarios. So the marriage wasn't any different. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, it was bit by bit. There was struggles at the start. And um, when you have a marriage visa and you get married, you can't physically work until you have that marriage license in your hand. And then you have to go off to the home office and get all that approved, etc. before you can physically work. And there was problems getting work there was problems getting like decent paid work as well. So I kind of felt like that's why he's dying. That's why he's grumpy. That's why he's moody. That's why, you know, so then I'm trying to go, oh, have you looked at this? Have you looked at that? Da, 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 da. And he's like, you know, getting snappy back. Um, but, you know, kept on going. But that's a lot of responsibility when you live in the south of England. I'm on a salary working in a hotel, not the best salary in the world. Um, not that much above minimum wage. Might have even been minimum wage. I'm not sure but supporting both of us basically on a minimum wage salary um, is no mean feat, but we did it. We did it for about a full year um, because we had to do that before getting married and then afterwards. Um, so you just kept on and that's what I did. I just kept on, kept on. He wanted us to get out of the hospitality industry because we never really had time together with different shifts. So I kind of unwillingly left really um, and went into recruitment, um, which was, a bit of a shark infested pool of water to go into it wasn't an easy environment to work in that's for sure um and along with things getting more tricky and more tricky within the marriage I was now working within an environment where I was actually getting 
ended up getting bullied quite badly at work by the management. So you wrap so many different layers of pressures going on. Um, it just all started slowly to build and I started getting sicker and not being able to cope with things um, and not being able to do so much because I was working full time. I was dropping him off to work, picking him up from the train station, cooking all the food, cleaning all the, all the household because that's what Indian wives do. And I fell right into that role of that's all my responsibility. We're also trying to renovate the house. I'm trying to make more money. I'm trying to get commission at work to make sure that we can pay for, you know, all the renovations and stuff that we were trying to do. Um, I was also, um, you know, helping to host um, our Bible group meeting that would go on every week, singing at the church, volunteering in the Sunday school, volunteering when we had different events and that kind of hospitality thing. Yeah, I was busy. <laughs> but that's how I worked. And I think a lot of the busyness was distraction as well. Because I wasn't really happy at work and I wasn't really happy at home. So I got my happiness helping like the little kids at Sunday school because they're just always a delight and um, helping the youth in the, the band. So they always struggled because the youth didn't want to like stand up and sing. So I would stand up and sing, even though I was definitely not youth and twice their age. Um, I'd be standing up there singing with the youth band at church. Um, you know, there's, there's parts like that where like, I really did enjoy it. You mean, and I was able to give back in the small group and sharing within that, like within our Bible group really enjoyed that as well so but what, what was the pattern there why are you always constantly doing so much you said it was a part of distraction you're doing that when you're in the cult as well it's been something that you've overcompensated or coped since you're a little girl just trying to please people especially the ones that you love and in the case it just went from your like father and then you ended up in the cult you got out of it you're with your your first husband and it just kept looping mm. you know so what was going on for you in terms of you know you you had left or talked about something was wrong you knew something was wrong after a couple of days of being married and then you go into crisis mode I need to patch this up I gotta make them happy you know it was never about like what makes you happy mm. and what you needed. And so, again, what were the sort of signs or symptoms that you noticed that were arising again, but this time in the form of your first husband? What did you notice about him that completely changed? Um, really just being kind. You know, being loving and being kind. Um, there was a lot less affection. Um, even though we weren't in India, I wouldn't want to always hold my hand, you know, or, you know, show any signs of kind of public affection, which you, you can't really do in India. But of course, we weren't living in India. We were living in the UK. Um, it's just getting colder. You mean, and I think, I think everybody's, would pick that up but particularly a female would pick that up if somebody is being just that bit colder or like won't want to sit with you on the sofa and you know cuddle up and watch something and always wanting their space and that's so bizarre because that's during your honeymoon time right like yeah that's so quickly a big contrast a 180 so 
it was really big and I, you know, put it down to, you know, so many other different factors. Um, so, and there was so much pressure, you know, particularly on that whole job front. And, you know, for him, it wasn't just a job. It was his career. It was his chance to make it in the UK. It was his chance to, um, you know, I think prove, uh, you know, to people at home and prove to himself that, you know, he could really make it here. Um, it was a big deal. He was on that visa. You know, the visa only lasts for so long. Um, and it's, you know, getting that real big chance, that opportunity to to make it happen. And also knowing that we've got bill, big bills coming in because of the visa process. You don't just pay one chunk. It keeps coming. Those big chunks kept coming. I think it was about eight, nine thousand in the end. It was a lot of money. And that was back in like, you know, the kind of mid 2000s. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge amount of money. And I think that pressure was there. And then I think he always wanted to achieve as well. He, he wanted a, you know, a good car. He wanted, uh, you know, we had the apartment, which was perfect, but then wanted a big house. Um, and eventually we like saved up enough and got, you know, the big house and just all these kind of things are trying to achieve it. He was on a, he was on a mission. He was on a drive and actually I was facilitating his goals, not our goals. I was facilitating what he wanted and his goals. Um, I think the whole being busy and being distracted for me started very, very young. You know, we, we grew up and we had to work. As little girls, we had to work, you know, met plenty of times chasing after the lambs that we had um, because we were smaller and more nimble than dad was. But like trying to do it in massive big welly boots and, you know, struggling to do stuff, struggling to do labor on a farm when you're small and not as capable. Um, but we were always expected to work. We had chores within the home. We had chores out in the farm and we were always expected to work and to do that. And then that became life later on as well when mum was sick and we did everything within the home you know all four of us we would all have our jobs we'd all have our roles we'd share it all out and we would just run the home you know from a young age and just do everything you know there wasn't somebody there to see you in the morning you know you got yourself up you got yourself dressed and washed and breakfast and your lunch made and you went walk to school and you know we did that on repeat looked after my little sister we all did that so that was part of me and I think it's also part of the work ethic that I came from you know country folk tend to work and they work hard um and unfortunately we weren't the side that work hard and play hard we just worked hard <laughs> yeah just worked hard and worked hard never actually did anything for yourself yeah not much fun yeah fun. your social life is going to church <laughs> wow so uh there was some fun in there but not a huge amount you know we came from a, a family where I talk about teetotaler and you're like what's that about basically you don't drink there wasn't ever alcohol there um i've got no recollection my mama ever drinking um very little of my dad drinking but that was much kind of later on in life um we just people didn't drink it wasn't it wasn't the thing that you did within a you know good presbyterian protestant family um so, so there, protestants don't party <laughs> that's how it was when i grew up <laughs> yeah well catholics do for sure <laughs> they definitely do for yeah, sure you see that here I mean, and I think that's, I mean, a lot of people here work hard, but they play hard as well. And playing hard doesn't have to mean, you know, getting drunk, but it's just having fun, letting your hair down, singing, laughing, having a bit of crack. I mean, mm -hmm. that's great. I didn't have a lot of that. So you're born in a slavery. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> so basically you had that momentum carrying you through childhood mm. into adulthood. So all you ever did, not all you ever really knew was to work 
including to sort of take care of uh, the house and the family. And then, you know, it went from a church to your husband. So it was constantly being in service. And that broke you down, broke your health, right? So all these things started to come. You started to notice that your health was falling apart. Your body was falling apart. And again, back to the question, because what changed? Because you had all of those sort of financial commitments and the visa process and his goals, right? Not necessarily your goals, right? Because I don't think that was even probably discussed what you wanted, right? It was all about what he wanted and pleasing him and then his career, right? So what changed overnight or within a couple of days of being married, right? Like, obviously there was a lot of drama uh, during your wedding right before, but it turned out from what I hear, I've seen the pictures, um, everybody had a jolly time, right? But then it just completely like, changed shifted into something's wrong yeah well we had we didn't have any money for honeymoon and uh the minister who married us lovely man um he was like do you want to borrow our caravan which was on the south coast of england and it was lovely and we had you know just this whole week caravan to ourselves and just time to chill and relax because i was exhausted geez it was a full workup trying to organize all of that and um uh, we only had a couple of days there. He was a bit grumpy and whatever. And then he was like, right, I want to go up to the home office to sort out the whole visa so I'll be able to work. We'd only had three days. We were supposed to be there, for, I think, for at least a week. And he was just like, no, I want to do this. So it's like a five-hour drive from where we were up to Croydon to kind of get all that sorted out. We didn't actually get it sorted out in that day. Then had to, like, go back up again. So there was basically no honeymoon. There was no like rest and just enjoy and enjoy each other. We didn't have that. It was just a couple of days of like exhausted flopping and then like right back on back on this mission of sorting out the visa and you know what's next. So that was just it was just that the pushing to get there wasn't really any kind of being relaxing, enjoying each other, enjoying that time um, or having kind of any. Really That's what you already it. knew anyways. Yeah, but I'd like your whole life. I think it was just there was quite a bit of disappointment there because I suppose in my mind I'd got this picture, which I think a lot of girls do. You know, you just think that everything's going to be great after you get married. I mean, you're going to have your happy ever after. And it really wasn't. And it was quite a slap, you know, quite quickly down to reality. And like, oh, right, okay, here we go. And then just on that treadmill of, right, next, 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 next. And just pushing way through, sleeping, just falling into bed, exhausted every day, and then up to, you know, carry on repeat again and again and again. Um, from a health point of view, I I suppose I had lots of different things because uh, we were so accident prone as when we were young and that carried on in adulthood. So there was always some injury of some sort to deal with, you know, going over my ankle or... I completely like pulled all the muscles in my ankle trying to cycle in a rush to get to church one day. Um, you know, there was always like some wee drama going on of some sort. Um, um, and from one of the kind of main issues that I'd had, well, kind of two main issues that I'd had from a kid. One was because I think I was such a bottle upper 
and I didn't express. It wasn't really safe to express when you were upset or when you were frustrated or angry or whatever was going on because, you know, if you showed that, it was like, I'll give you something to cry about. You know, basically shut up or I'll hit you again. Um, and that was a big phrase that we all had when we were young. So just you, you learned to shut up. You learned to just keep it all in. Um, and I did that more so, I think, than any of my sisters. You know, they had different outlets at different points. But I always seemed to be the one that held it all together. I always seemed to be the good girl. I was always the girl that never rebelled or never like lost her crap or never you know let things go like still I'm 42 and still not drunk I mean I've never been drunk in my life I never really let my hair down I never really rebelled or let go um and I think because of that bottling up of all those emotions and all those feelings I physically my physical body bottled up I just didn't go to the toilet it was I was regularly going to the doctors with mom or with dad basically to then go oh right okay she's in so much pain because she hasn't been to the toilet in two weeks you know what I mean and it's like not normal to not do a number two for like two weeks and that was but that was a regular thing like I don't know how many laxatives I had over the years but there were many different types I can let I can visually see seven different types from when I was a kid um and that was an issue right up until fairly recently and really until I met you um, and then we started learning, you know, you taught me so much about health um, and really health is your wealth. That's the whole point. If you haven't got your health, you haven't really, you know, you can't really enjoy anything else. Yeah, if you have all the money in the world, the wealth, but you can't enjoy it. Exactly. You know, what's the point, you know? And we've learned so much, particularly through um, Dr. Beck with Balance Protocol. That's been brilliant. Um, so I'd had that issue from a little girl. As an adult, it was normal basically not to go to the toilet you know every kind of five days or something that was fairly standard policy for me obviously not ideal so basically your body's holding toxins all mm -hmm. the time and there's accumulation over years of this and so i want people to know that don't expect healing to happen overnight mm -hmm. just as long as it took for you to get where you're at it's gonna take quite some time to undo all those old habits and trauma and all that stuff to heal so give yourself time be patient but just be consistent you know and the really interesting thing for me um talking so much about going to the toilet here sorry um is that when i'm stressed i don't go to the loo it's day and night it's black and white i could eat all the fiber i could want to eat i could eat all the fruit vegetables you know i always have had a good diet um and more so now but it wasn't the diet it's literally if i'm stressed out i don't go to the bathroom um and it's super clear yeah and you mentioned you know this is the blueprint that you were given or you developed out of a way to um cope yeah cope, cope with everything you know all the all the hard things you had to go through and painful things and so we're trying to get a new blueprint. And you had mentioned all these things um, in the prior podcast, including, you know, improving a, a new kind of signal into your nervous system that has to be rewired, so to speak. And and so, like I said, all these things take, take some time. Um, 
and we'll get into we had alluded to a friend of ours that we've been working with who's been helping us with our blueprint and uh, his name is double a matt um you know we've had a hard time trying to describe like what exactly did he he do or what's his title right and we kept asking him and he just said like hey you know people call me the the wizard of the emerald isle Mm -hmm. and it's true like he is like some sort of a wizard and people have done like multiple programs of whether it's cleanses or you know nutrition exercise just trying to change things but they find themselves repeating the loops of some sort of coping mechanism addiction uh falling off the wagon and everybody has the right intentions they're trying to heal they're trying to stop the old patterns and behaviors uh they try everything you know you, you talk about like every kind of diet and they just don't understand why they keep falling off the wagon and all these things work but until you work with the actual programming that is running through your system and create a new like blueprint of possibilities you're just gonna keep doing groundhog day you're gonna keep repeating it it's going to be so frustrating because you're going to do really well. You're going to be really disciplined. You'll probably do that for a month or during a, a New Year's resolution. And then February rolls around. You miss a workout. You know, you, you don't prepare your food. You go out with your friends. And then you feel guilty, feel bad that you you fell off the wagon, you give up, right? And then you a year goes by and <laughs> New Year's resolution again. And so my point is that if you can find someone like Double A that has the ability to to see what's going on in your, I don't know, mind, your psyche, and help you address sort of those sticking points or resistant points and unlock them, and maybe install new, like new healthy programs. And cause it's not that programs are bad. It's just what programs are actually running your system. And if you can like go in there, similar to the machine that I used on you, right? Um, but if you can actually get down to that foundation level and locate those faulty programs and delete them and replace them with programs that are empowering, it will blow you away in just little time, you know? You don't have to go through, like, years of therapy. Um, Not that I'm against that, but there's all these different things that are out there that help people, but why do people keep relapsing? And that's my point. If you could find something that can get to the core of it and clear it out so that you don't find yourself in those repetitive negative loops. And so um, we'll probably, well, we'll definitely have double A on at some point. Um, But I want to get back to the question, Judy. (laughs) Could you keep avoiding answering you know it's like yeah all these things are happening between your first husband and you 
you guys didn't get to enjoy, you know, relax after your wedding. But something significantly happened. It was almost like he became a different person that you knew, right? And it's like, yeah, there's the stresses of like trying to get the visa, trying to get a career. You know, you're in a new country. I know all of those things. Like we've been through similar things. It's just for us, it's been magical, mm -hmm. right? Some of the things you've said, it, it sounds almost like a repeat. But how are we going to not repeat those patterns that you went through with your first husband, what I went through with my first wife, stuff with your dad, stuff with the cult, my dad, all the cults that I've been in and cliques that I just realized like, holy shit, this is another loop. It just, you know, they say it's a diff same face, just different person, right? And um, so again... <laughs> what what was going on I mean how did the abuse start happening how did you get to a place where you were like geez this is falling apart again and I'm in another sort of cultic charismatic leader charismatic person I'm following someone again I'm not doing what I want that person's not even listening to me. They're telling me what to do. You you found yourself repeating the pattern just this time instead of a group. It was with your significant other. Trying to remember exactly what the question was. Um, 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 um. Uh. Yeah, just again, for the th fourth time. <laughs> When did you realize, I mean, you said like after a couple of days, something yeah, was different, that. right? But you stuck in there yeah. for years, yeah. right? Even after the affairs, right? And yeah. being cheated on, you're just trying to make it work. You took, went through counseling. So take it on. The, the breaking point for me like there was lots of sad things that had happened and everybody on the outside, things were great. I mean, they saw this guy that would be the life and soul of the party. Good fun, very hospitable, welcoming. They loved to have him home when, you know, we went home for Christmas and stuff. And then he'd literally be crappy to me in the car on the way back to where we were staying. And it was like, I want to be married to that person, not this one. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it was literally Jekyll and Hyde. And that's, it's horrible to live within that. And everybody thinks you've got this lovely marriage, you know, with your friend circle and the church circle and your family circle and living basically that lie. And that became a lot more evident to me, aware of that. Um, and part of stresses of things when I broke down, um, you know, physically, I actually ended up with uh, like a dizziness thing called labyrinthitis, which is basically like vertigo, where you're constantly like spinning, you're vomiting, you feel like you're hitting the floor, your whole sense of balance is gone. I ended up having to leave the job that I was in the recruitment job, but I was being bullied and stuff then as well. And eventually after being on the sick, which I absolutely hated, I went back, had an exit interview and the, the director apologized and said, yeah, you were right. But we, I'm sorry, we didn't listen to you about the manager that was bullying you because it came all out when I was off sick 
that he'd been doing it to copious amounts of other people. Um, so there'd been like there'd been so many things going on. I'd had to change my job, really drop down on the salary that impacted us then not being able to do all the work because I was bringing in the kind of the larger wage, etc. So things kind of just they went through stages of not great, getting worse, getting worse. And looking back in hindsight, there were actually the dates of what the home, what was going on in the home office. There was a year. The visa. Yeah, the visa. So there was a year after we'd been married. There was three years. There was five years. And now that I look back, it's as obvious as day. And I don't know if he actually in, intentionally was thinking that or was it a subconscious thing? I don't know. But literally it went in stages. And for me, that kind of like big shift point was I'd had that accident where the, the truck had driven into me. I'd got off the motorway. I'd called him. It was literally a mile and a half from our house. Um, and I was like, I need your help. And kind of just saying, I'm really scared. And he didn't come. And I had to like sort all that crap by myself, sort it out with the lorry driver, comfort the my friend who was in the passenger seat. The, the car was still drivable, drive, drop her off. I'm an absolute state at this point. Get home, arrive in the, the driveway. And he's out checking the car and upset with me because of the state of the car I was in. Nothing about me, nothing about what I'd been through, nothing about was I okay. And um, I went into the house and I remember I was shaking. Um, but I was just in shock and, you know, being through something horrific and really scary and telling him, I need you to hold me, I need you to hold me. And, and he didn't. And actually, I remember getting, going up to him and putting his arm and like literally putting his arms around me and he still didn't hold me. And at that point, we had a friend staying with us. He'd been staying with us for a while. Lovely guy um, from Pakistan. And I'd always felt like later on that things got a bit awkward in the house and I didn't really know what it was. And I kind of assumed that I wasn't really being a good enough wife. And, you know, he was... Um, you know, from, from there. So like he was of a different religion, but I kind of thought, you know, he probably thought I wasn't really being a good enough wife because I would, you know, answer back sometimes or whatever. Mm -hmm. so, and that was your thing too. You make a lot of assumptions. Totally, totally. I and, do too, but I've, but I've seen you. Yeah. yeah. But it was always the very negative assumptions. Like, like I would, you know, one plus one equals seven and in negative seven it was never in a positive way that I would, you know, make assumptions. It was always the negative that the person was thinking the absolute worst of me. Um, and that which was what wasn't the case, but he saw that happen. He saw that event unfold. Um, and then I think quite quickly later, he was actually leaving um, just with what had happened. He didn't need to stay with us anymore. And he came back one evening and I was like, oh, hi, felt a bit awkward, kind of. Oh, um, you know, he's not here at the moment. He's, you know, off working because he was working um, up near London a few days a week. And he was like, no, no, I, I came to see you. And I'm thinking, oh, no, awkward. What's going to what's he going to say? What's he going to say? Because things had got really awkward in the house when he was there. And I was like, well, what's going to happen? And what he told me was his truth about what was going on within my home. And he had the guts to say it. And he basically said, Judith... He doesn't respect you at all. 
he treats you awfully he expects you to do things that are way above your capabilities you know as a female with the strength that you have he was like you work harder than any woman i've ever seen um but he is expecting way more of you than you should be giving and he doesn't respect you and if and at this this point because he doesn't respect you he's going to go elsewhere Basically, he's going to have affairs. He's going to he's going to do these things. And it was almost like a prophet coming into my life. You I mean, because that happened. That was all within the December. It was crazy how quickly things started to unfold from then. But he came and spoke his truth. And it was quite scary. And it wasn't expected. And I wasn't, you know, he's a nice guy, but I wasn't close to him. But he told me his truth. And that was a big, big turning point. Like, my, I think one of my biggest turning points, because... He left. I just cried my eyes out. I think I cried for about five hours straight. Um, I was just like devastated, but I was also relieved because I felt like I was going mad. I was trying so hard to make this work. I was trying so hard to make this this guy love me, this guy look after me, and and be a be a team and work together and you know, have a happy, have, have a happy life, a happy home together. And it wasn't happening. And yeah, it was that confirmation that I wasn't going mad and that what I thought was happening was actually happening. So the affairs were happening before that or after? I think after, I think after. Um, but that night, like I just cried and cried and cried. And I think about three in the morning, I gave in and I asked for help. And it was the first time that I'd asked for help, like truly asked for help. And I'd wanted to ask for help when I was a teenager. I remember the social worker that we had, she'd written out the number for a counsellor and her name and a number and she gave it to me and I put it on my notice board and I looked at, I think for about four years on my notice board and I wanted to make that call and I wanted to ask for help, but I never did. And now I'm like, what age am I now then? I'm about 32. And it was the first time I asked for help. And three in the morning, I phoned my foster parents. Makes me upset to this point because they were there for me. And they picked up that phone and they talked to me. And they just let me pour it all out. And they had no idea. You know, I lived in England, covered it up pretty well. They had no idea what was going on. Um, And they were brilliant because they weren't like Judith will sort this out you know they were like well we'll sort you we'll help you but they were very much like you've got to sort this out Judith you mean they weren't like come home we'll work it all out we're gonna come and rescue you they didn't do that and that was such a good thing that they didn't do that they were like Judith okay what are you gonna do about it now what are you gonna do tomorrow what are you gonna do in next week what do you want from this? What's what's the outcome that you want now? And asking me all those open questions so I was figuring it out because I had everybody else decide everything else for me. But they were like, right, what are you going to do? You're in, you know, take control of what your What do you life. want, right? Yeah, and they were so good. And I was like, I want to make it work. I want to get counseling. I want to get help. We need help. Um, and... Uh, yeah, they were so good because they didn't inter- interject or say what they thought. They just were like, right, what do you want? How are you going to do it? 
and then were basically getting me to commit to basically phone them back and basically check in because I'm the kind of person that would be like disappear back into the shadows again and go on for like how long before I get to a breaking point um they were really good so I'm now covertly trying to go right mission get counseling fix the marriage fix whatever's wrong with us I can do this so I reached out I think probably that next day to a Christian um, counseling organization near where I worked and left a message with them and they seemed really nice and they'd been recommended before for something else and I kind of clocked clocked the name so I was like I knew where to go to Um, and also I didn't want it within like the church where I was because I didn't want anybody to know what was happening I didn't want it to be too close so I left that with them trusting that they'd get in touch Um, and that was pretty much a bit of a heartbreak situation because I was just waiting 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 and then there was Christmas New Year still waiting for these people to get back in contact eventually they did they called me in and I had this appointment with a guy actually which I did think was a wee bit weird but I was like right okay um and I just poured out my heart and soul to this man for about 45 minutes to an hour I just told him everything cried away and he was like writing different things at that point and I'm thinking right okay waiting for him to say right this is what we're going to do now and this is how we're going to help you and he didn't say that he was like right um we'll be in touch when we've got time for an appointment and I was like right thinking we've just had an appointment he was like this was an assessment I was like right there was no promise of an appointment they were really busy there was and that was just like I was devastated because it had been such a big deal to get to that appointment and then pour my whole heart out to this man I didn't even know and then for there to be no commitment of any appointment or any joint counseling or anything yeah you waited months and you're still it was like months and months later that they call back and went oh we've got a gap now and i'm like oh too late yeah and you're telling me this story earlier and the thing that's crazy is we think that what you're going through or what i've gone through or anybody else it's we're only ones in the world that is going through Mm -hmm. these situations and turns out it's like ubiquitous and you're like what does that mean I'm like it's like everywhere it's like rampant there's problems all over the place whether it's these sort of abusive situations or trying to save a marriage or people are sick they're trying to get into the hospital whether it's a social system or you know a private sector but literally all of these problems are all around us and you know especially in a place where it's more like a social system like your their waiting list is ridiculous so i can't imagine like how frustrating that is for you because you think okay we're in let's get this done and you're still not done he just gives you an assessment he's like okay well you know mm-hmm. let's do the next thing which finally you do get an appointment right uh not with them okay not with them um yeah, it was just so hard because when you're at your breaking point and you're physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically exhausted and you've got to your breaking point and then there's no... When you've eventually reached out for help, I wasn't there. I was like, oh. Uh, yeah, so you're in this living situation for months still. Yeah, it's really trying to like keep it all together. Um, so, yeah, things between uh, myself and my, my ex-husband kind of really breaking down 
there were signs then that I was like, something's up. And like, I, if anybody has been through when somebody's having an affair, there are just things that you notice that are different about that person and they're undeniable and your intuition is hot. And I just knew something was up and it happened really quickly and I was just like, something's up, something's up. And one day went into the bathroom. We didn't have a lock on our bathroom door and I'm freaking out because I saw him naked in the shower and you're like, alarm bells have gone off and I'm like, ran out. And I knew then, I just knew without a doubt I just needed to find the evidence to make sure thousand percent that I hadn't made it up. And, you know, you do the whole thing, going through the phone, Facebook, all of that stuff, just trawling, looking for kind of anything, any sign. Um, I think at that point he'd mentioned about a girl that he danced with at the Christmas party and how good a dancer as she was kind of thing. And I'd clock that, clock the name. Um, and yeah, few weeks in I basically proved it got the evidence phoned the hotel where he's staying all night long the whole night long until 6 30 in the morning you know I needed to know for sure for sure for sure for sure and then you know my family were like Judith go like I opened up and I said and they were like come see us just go and I'm like no I need to speak to him they're like you do not you do not need to do anything with this man and I'm like I need to speak to him and he lied so many times and then eventually he was like yeah yeah and then he agreed later he was devastated and I think he was devastated actually for himself not for me or what he had put me through not for that massive rejection and out of everything that I'd been through and everything we'd been through together that was the thing that broke me it was such a personal rejection of me it was like so deep. It was so like it was like it was like the the thing that would hurt me the most. You know, he'd like right tick that box. Um. So yeah. So I went through. Um. I think about a. I don't know about ten days of figuring out what to do. Came back home. My fo- foster parents were amazing. They were great, again, being very much like, what are you going to do? How do you want to do this? And I was like, keep going. I need to need to work this. I need to make this work. And they're like, Judith, you don't need to do anything now. You know, you just, um, you need to do what's right for you. Um, and uh, they were really good. But I was so, you know, for me, when you get married, it's a commitment for life. You know, I very much believe that it was a covenant and that it was a covenant that you made before God and before all those people that were there, that you're there for life and you, you work things out and we could work this out and we could work this through. Um, and at that point he wanted to, and that's what he was saying to me. And he looked genuinely devastated um, and really genuinely wanted to do, to work it out um so we went to eventually went to relate actually which uh, basically provide joint counseling like marriage counseling um and like a private organization we saw them and the lady was like you're still in shock it's been two weeks since you've basically found out about this affair you're in shock and you're not ready for joint counseling um and she basically went 
I'm not going to do counselling with you. She gave us like one session basically there and that's where kind of her summary was. Um, and in it, he shared things that I didn't know about him. I literally looked at him and was like, I don't know who this person is. All this stuff that he'd been through, all this abuse that he'd had, um, where he was left, you know, neglected, vulnerable, abused, um, right, everything right across the board. It was horrendous. I was like, I don't, I don't know who this person is because they never thought to share any of that with me. They never, I thought I was the messed up one. I thought I was the one that came from the really, you know, messed up childhood. And I was the one with the issues, but he had had worse than me. But I'd never thought to open up or tell me anything about it. And I was just like brain blown. Um, um, but anyway, this lady had said, basically, you're not ready for joint counselling. Both of you go off for six weeks and have individual counselling and then come back to me and we'll assess and see where you are. So we did it. And I found this lady and she was great. And it was a big deal seeing her and opening up to her. And through the session, she kept going back to my dad. She kept going back to my childhood. And I remember getting frustrated with her. And I said, I don't understand why you keep talking about my dad because I'm here to save my marriage. I'm here to work through what just happened with my with my husband. Why do you keep talking about my dad? Why do we keep going back there? It's not about that. And she was like, no, no, no. That's where it all comes from. And it took me a long time to figure out what she was on about. Um, so he did his own counselling. Wasn't as committed as I was, but did it. And then we did the joint counselling together and more kind of unravelled and more unravelled. Um, and then we eventually changed that counsellor, went to another counsellor. And later on in that process of months of counselling and just a fortune, it's an absolute fortune to have private counselling and to have it weekly for both of you and then for joint counselling. It was an absolute fortune um, and it was really putting a lot of pressure on us. He opened up and said he had continued to have the affair. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I'm like doing everything I can, everything I can to make that work. And then for that to come down crashing on me, I mean, and I'd made that commitment. I was going to do everything I could to save this marriage and I was going to do everything I could within my strength. And my family were saying, please don't go, Judith. Please don't do this. You've been through enough. You've tried hard, long enough and hard enough don't do it and what does that sound like me not listening and me in my little mind controlled world <laughs> no what who does that remind you of of not listening no that's trying everything to make it work just turning the other cheek that's pretty much forgiving my yes my mom. yeah i remember actually when i was back home and standing at my mum's grave and crying and saying sorry and promising to her that even though I'd ended up in almost a, you know, roll by roll, same scenario as mum had, you know, I just hadn't had kids at that point. Um, you mean that I was like, I promised her that I wouldn't have the outcome that she had that I wouldn't let it continue and that I wouldn't let it destroy me and get sick like mom had got sick and then died of cancer um, and it was basically saying yeah making that promise to her it was a big deal 
It's a big deal standing there making that promise to her. Because, like, how devastated would she be seeing that same outcome and seeing history repeat itself? And I was so close. So close because I really had started to get so unwell. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, like, that's kind of come to a bit of a summary on this one was that carried on with the counselling and and I I was stronger than I thought I ever could be and I think the difference with me at that point was I was making my own choices at that point I wasn't following somebody else I wasn't listening to somebody else I wasn't being controlled by somebody else I was making my own choices and yes, I was choosing to go back into a really difficult situation, but I needed to know for myself that I'd done everything that I could to make it work. And I was choosing help and I'd asked for help. And during the counselling, oh geez, counselling was so hard. Um, and there were two beautiful ladies um, at the church, Eastleigh Baptist Church that I'd mentioned before. And they were amazing because I was really struggling in the counselling. I was literally on an emotional roller coaster. Counseling was on a Thursday. I would be a car wreck at work on a Friday and then exhausted and just, yeah, I was just a bit all over the place. And uh, one of the ones was like, I said, I said to her, I think, I said, I think the thing that I need the most, I don't really need to talk after the counseling because I said, I'm just a bit exhausted at the point. I just said, I just need a big hug. And she's like, that's fine. So I'd get off the train. I'd walk to her house. I'd knock on the door. And she wouldn't say anything and she literally just hugged me because I'm taller than her. So I'm standing there. She's on the doorstep and she just enveloped me up. And we didn't need to say anything. And it was the best thing. It was that like, because when you're having counselling and you're going through and you're bringing all this stuff up, sometimes it's like open heart surgery where it hasn't healed. They rip open the stitches again. You're in hugging and again, you're bleeding and oozing out everywhere. And then you're kind of patched up a bit and then you're, back out to function in the real world again and it literally feels like you had open heart surgery and you haven't come to this like nice little conclusion and you feel okay to go home I was just a mess you know I mean sometimes my poor flatmate that I like ended up living with she was just an absolute star because I, sometimes I would come home and I'd cry my eyes out for 45 minutes straight like really crying your eyes out um or I would be like all energetic and like jumping off the walls, like a bit manic, or I would be trying to pick an argument with her and she is like the the least argumentative person you've ever met. Or I'd be like swearing. I was just all over the shop. And I remember chatting to one of the, a counsellor that, because one of my counsellors migrated to Australia and I was devastated. I didn't know how I was going to cope without her. And then later on I got this other counsellor and she was I had, like, I said, I think I'm going mad. I, I'm literally like manic and what's wrong with me? And she's like, you're angry? And I was like, no. And she's like, you are. <laughs> I'm like, but this is, this is it. And she's like, you're angry. And I, I didn't know because I hadn't let myself be angry. I remember promising as a really little girl that I wasn't going to be like my dad. And I wasn't going to be angry because anger then produced all this horrible, horribleness that we went through because dad got angry because he flew off the handle. And I promised myself I wouldn't be angry. And that was that bottling up of the emotions and then the bottling up of me physically it was just I'd been bottled up for so long and never let those true emotions out and being angry was scary because I didn't know what it was and I couldn't it was like a car that's on like 
driving and you don't know how to drive it and you're like suddenly trying to like take over and like not crash kind right. of thing i didn't yeah. know where it was going to end yeah i just want to interject here so like you know things like anger or you know the other two episodes we seem like we're like bashing church as well and that's the thing like things aren't black and white like things are more in color and shades of gray mm-hmm. i don't know about 50 shades of gray but um ha 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 um but the point is is that like church can be a good and a very safe place a great organization for connection to the divine and to others in the community so we're not like bashing church it's just more the the churches that cover stuff up or take advantage of people including uh, young children so you know you had a church couple of friends there you're still in touch to this day they were there they were like the sort of poster people of like a real solid organization that really does help those in need and are inclusive and the same around anger like we've been taught that you can't be angry you know, you have to bottle it up or it can, no, you need to express anger just in a like very constructive and healthy way, not a a dangerous or a, a destructive way. So yeah, that's, that's just what I wanted to emphasize there. Thank you. Um, so this gal says, you're angry. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I just didn't recognize it. I didn't know really that emotion. And then I didn't know how to control it. And it's interesting because it's come back many times where I've tried to deal with it. And it's kind of felt like this monster inside. Um, so I tell you all the time, Judy, get it out. Exercise yeah. your demons. Express it. I'm here. Show me that ugly side. You know, just get it out, release it, you know, and then I'm still here. Yeah. Right? Um, it was hard, uh, you know, showing all those kind of raw emotions. They were suppressed and repressed for so long. And I did kind of put, kept putting them back in the box, back in the box. Um, and uh, Matt, we call him double A Matt because it's M-A-A-T. Um, really that kind of really kind of the box got opened in the first appointment and the first appointment was amazing it was really incredible and it wasn't anything like I expected it and it was like the best counseling session that you'd had times a hundred and I'm not over expressing that I've never known any therapy as as good and as effective as what he does it's like other things skirt around the issues or skirt around the secondary you know outskirts but this goes right into the core of what is the root what is right at that root you know sometimes when I'm dealing with rejection or dealing with other things he's like no what about that loneliness and I'm like oh and you go back to feeling like three or four when you felt lonely all alone and it goes it goes right back into those core points where those core things happened in your childhood whether you had a good childhood or a bad childhood there's always 
key points, key memories where something was missing, mm. where you felt neglected or you felt rejected or you felt lonely or you felt um, angry or you felt, and you get, you know, you got stuck. You weren't able to kind of process that because you were, you know, you, you weren't able to, you were a child um, and maybe the ones around you didn't recognize it or know how to help you. Um, and it just kind of gets like stored away in there, you know, for years later to kind of come out. Um, but yeah, afterwards I was like this unleashed person. I thought I was, I thought I was going to destroy everything around me for about 10 days because it was like so much well, it was longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it was 10 days <laughs> of just going through those crazy manic emotions again, where I was all over the shop and didn't, couldn't control it and couldn't control myself and was just all over the shop. And then having a really simple conversation with somebody and I dawned on me and I thought, I'm just scared. It wasn't feeling the emotions and it wasn't facing the past or facing the demons of the past. Those weren't the issues. It was because I was scared. That was the key. Scared of what? Scared of the emotions, scared of feeling them, scared that they were going to overtake me and that I would be some monster that I didn't want to be. Like your father. Yeah, exactly. That I wouldn't be able to control it, that I wouldn't be able to control myself. Um because it just felt like it just this big tidal wave of huge massive emotions and I just felt overwhelmed with it. Yeah, years of it. Yeah, literally. Built up. And then once I was like, oh, I'm just scared of feeling the emotions. It's not the actual emotions themselves. It was just the fear. Or the consequences of them. Yeah. Yeah. And that really broke it. And then I was like, okay, I can, I can deal with this now. I can cope with this now. You were amazing, I have to say. High five. Patience of a saint. Tony Florel. Wasn't easy. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but we made it through. We made it we through. We did it. Totally. You did it. And that's, you know, it's been, a, it's been a big journey. You love me? I totally love you. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's been such a big journey going through so much. And it wasn't an overnight thing. There have been so many things, so many people that have helped me, like, beautiful lady in the church there every week letting me pour my heart out to her praying together sharing bible verses together you know letting me be part of her family just enveloping me up within their celebrations and within their dinners and things that they were doing just there's so many beautiful people and i find that from really early on that families would just envelope me up into their into their environment it happened in Scotland complete strangers I walked into the church first time I went to the church in Scotland when I was working there and they just were like come to dinner yeah. like, I don't even know you there's good people out there they're amazing yeah. they're amazing and they just enveloped me up and it happened no matter where I was yeah. I'm still in touch <laughs> still in touch with that, those families you know they're still there you know older couples you know and it, that was great and I had it with my school friends as well because I related to my parents more than I related to my friends I loved my friends we got on great but I'd been through so much adult stuff by the time I was 12 that I needed an adult to talk to because they'd experienced loss they'd experienced losing somebody close they'd experienced heartache they'd experienced so many different things that I related more with them and I needed those conversations and I loved those conversations and I love, you know, I love those people dearly and those families dearly because they give me a chance to see a, a stable, loving family home and to know it existed 
and to feel safe. And it might have just been for an, an hour or a couple of hours. Um, many a times I went to a friend's home when I was at primary school and I just would run up and she was like, oh, she's not here. She's out horse riding. And then she'd just look at me standing like a little orphan on the doorstep going, do you want to come in? I'm like, yeah. I'd spend the day cleaning the house with her and I loved it. I was so happy. You mean this little one just cleaning? I just loved it because I felt loved by her and I felt so warm and safe and accepted there. And you can always make a difference for somebody. You can see when somebody's struggling. You can see when somebody's upset. It might be just the smile that they needed. That lovely guy, we saw him upset on the corner and we were going off to get ice creams and we had extra ice creams and I was like, he needs an ice cream. And we went up and gave him an ice cream and I've never seen anybody scoff an ice cream so quickly before, but he was so delighted and shared his little heart about why he was upset. Mm -hmm. Just think it's something. And then we're like, you want another one? (laughs) And he's like, really? (laughs) Yes. That was gone in an instant too. And we're like, how are you not having brain freeze right now? But um, no, there's angels out there. There Like you're saying that sometimes you have to see an evidence of something contrary to what you're used to, right? And But that's the thing about our perception of reality, right? Is that if you never experience anything of what you know, then you don't know that there's any other possibilities until that possibility actually occurs in in it's evident to you that that's another way that people can see the world or live. And that's why I like the news. It's a little skewed because they're just putting out negativity and that's what sells. Like people want to see the car accidents, right? Even though they talk about not wanting it, but that's just, they're just tapping into the deep primal layer of our brain that's wired towards a negativity bias. And so the fact that you could see that there are stable family structures that aren't abusive, that people don't take advantage of each other, that are, you know, have more than enough and are spilling over to help others, bring them in their home, make them feel comfortable. And and um, so that is there. It's just, again if you grew up in an environment since you're a child and all you ever saw was abuse and trauma, experienced trauma and pain and suffering, it's, it's understandable why like my father went through or is the way he was or is, and he's no longer with us, but, um, your father, our families, you know, everybody talks about like how, you know, our family is the crazy family. Like everybody's trying to like fight over who has a crazier family, you know, and it's breaking that, that chain of abuse and cycle that been passed on to each generation. So that's also part of healing. It's can we break these chains and patterns that have been inherited on a like DNA level and then as a emotional programming based on like what you witnessed and experienced as a child, which your parents passed on to you. Because again, you know, I'm not a parent yet, (laughs) but the point is, is that it's not what the parent says. The kids model what the parents do. 
and and that's the same with us like we're trying to talk less and sort of do more in terms of more of that empowering stuff so like the evidence the proof in the pudding is like in the case of our health we're trying to exude health by being healthy by living healthy and doing things that are healthy having a mindset healthy it's not just nutrition and sort of all the common sense things it's a deeper thing it's it's basically trying to create a better blueprint a more empowering blueprint that doesn't have sort of the the horrible things that happened in the past through generations passed on to us but it's sort of reprogramming and redeveloping that blueprint that is out of our choice that's empowered and that we can break that chain and then we can pass that on right whether it's through uh, kids or people around us so it's possible to completely heal to shift i think we've been examples of that and it's it is like an onion layer you know an onion you just keep peeling it's an ongoing process and uh but to understand that you can sort of reframe reality just by making a decision by asking yourself because this is what like i love about double a matt like we rave about this guy you know and the work that he's done because it's so quick and effective it doesn't take years of you know psychoanalysis and again i'm not taking away from those things they they have their their value all these things do but a lot of times like you said it took a lot of time it took a lot of money it took a lot of like you know just effort and you name it it's like it's it's not something that gets to the root of it and what he does that's different is that he asks you just point blank what do you want and at first you're you're kind of like oh shit what do i want right because even if you are given the freedom to decide what you want you're kind of scared to say what you want like and it's like oh well where is that coming from right like why do you feel like guilty like saying like this is what i want for my life right because it almost sounds like selfish and you have to overcome that right because it isn't like selfish it's i see it as like a self-investment it's instead of investing in all these like different financial things why don't we start investing in ourselves because we actually can control the outcome better than just putting money out into these different sort of stocks or crypto or you name it right but if you can invest in yourself and that to me is like what self-love is and self-care um even self-help that can go a little bit skewy and screwy there but the point is is that you can control by making the choice and then deciding like how do you want to live your life how do you want to live the rest of your life no matter where you are in your life time or life lying right it's never too late right and it's almost like to me that's where 
the true like born again stuff happens right it's not necessarily having this like experience like I've certainly had like multiple times I call a holy shift and like we were saying in prior episodes like we sound very like Christian in terms of the lingo and the, like having this like dark night of soul and then a transformation in terms of like feeling like brand new you know um but like what are you gonna do from that point or what are you gonna do right now as he would say like what do you want and then work your way reverse engineer like that outcome similar to what your foster parents did they didn't tell you what to do how to do things they said judy what are you gonna do what do you want right and so they gave you that like direction the brain needs sort of the outcome has to see a vision to like move towards a goal an aim and that way you're not at the mercy of of life and the world and chaos you can always come back to like at that moment what do I want right now and have a decision where you cut off all possibilities outside of the outcome that you want or a choice you can consciously choose to break out of an old pattern and create a new one and go like, that's the direction I want to move in life. So we love double A, you know, he, (laughs) we have to be careful, right? Because, you know, he's not a guru. He's not a, a teacher. He's not, you know, I guess the closest thing would be like a guide, but uh, apparently everybody's calling him a wizard, you know, and I agree. It's It's been a fun journey um, working with him, uh, being friends with him. And, um, you know, I was crazy skeptical. Uh, I still am. You know, a lot of things I'm like, I, I just, like I said, I don't want to lose myself into another person or another uh self-help thing or a a a cult thing whether it's all this stuff from biohacking to like we talked about even the machine that we use for getting people out of pain or to restore the proper electrical flow and connectivity in their body removing resistance but if we don't deal with the core blueprint then all of these things that are modalities and therapeutic, they just are no different from taking a pharmaceutical pill. They'll help, they'll alleviate whatever symptom you have, but until you address address the cause, the core root of things, you're just going to keep repeating and you're going to keep taking these things you know, and that, and and that's where we're at. We're we're like we want to get rid of the blocks, the resistance, the things that are preventing us from living a really awesome life. And it's just so cool to see you heal. Like I said, it took time, and we're still working on things. Um. But the fact that like we're we're seeing each other as individuals, right? There's no cookie cutter approach. Everybody has a specific need that needs to be addressed. So 
that's what we look at as a litmus test when we work with other health professionals or people that are just masters of understanding the psyche and sort of the the mind and they treat you like an individual. They sit down, they talk to you, they spend time with you, they get to know you and then they address the cause, the root of things because, you know, we love modern medicine, incredible. The pharmaceutical corporations, and eh, but the medicines certainly have helped people. But it's, to be honest, it's still sick care, right? Like true health care, even on the sort of organic side and, the, you know, all the modalities that are from that and the alternative therapies are just as bad because I would say not bad, but just their intentions are the same to make profit. So yes, go see a medical doctor when you need them, right? And when you go and look at alternative doctors and therapists, look at what their intentions are. Are they able to address the cause or are they just selling you instead of a pill but they're selling you supplements mm -hmm. and then you have like a whole stack of different supplements in your cupboard instead of like pharmaceutical it's similar business model so i think also as well um you need to be able to admire that person that they're showing what they do you mean if they're a nutritionist that they look, you know, healthy and strong or, you know, if they're a therapist, they've got their shit together. You mean you're able to see, oh, they're an example of what they do. That's right. That's number one. You mean and Yeah. Do they do they practice what they preach? Do they live? Are they an example of their story, an example where they heal thyself, physician? Mm -hmm. So but that was another tangent because you did bring up a double A mat and uh, what's up buddy we really appreciate your help and, and your the friendship thing, the thing as well with double A is that every time I've had an appointment he helps guide but I am doing the work I have led that appointment it's gone with what I've been feeling what I've been seeing what I've you know felt all that kind of stuff and for me it's like he helps me unlock it that I am actually doing it he's just guided in the process and that's a very different therapy than I've had before where it's like they're the therapist they know what they're doing you don't really know what's going on and then you know out you pop at the with end the same session. thing like are you just following their orders or are they basically asking you like what do you want how do you want to do it how can we best serve you and it's not yeah there is like a almost a a similar thing of uh like different bullet points of things that will help you gain your health and then the symptoms just kind of disappear mm -hmm. It's a different paradigm, but like you said, he you're he's not doing the work for you. You're doing the work. You're empowered. He just 
kind of like showing you he's not even telling you he's just sort of like hinting because there's a whole other ball of wax that comes from like somebody that is telling you what to do and we can talk about karmic consequences and like that's not like what you want like you don't want to take on the karma by like just giving people the answers mm-hmm. you know and, and it's so easy just to give people the answers but in the end they don't really change mm-hmm. right they don't well i think it's it's integrating yeah it's integrating what you've learned it's all that stuff like the same with uh you know when you're learning a math problem or something right it's like it's easy to go to the back of the book and get the answers or ask somebody to get the answer but there's no sense of like ownership right and and like like responsibility for yourself and uh and that's the thing that i find is missing in society because everything is like given to us everything's quick and fast and easy and we don't know like how to struggle how to be patient and how to like work through a process and and get to like learn about ourselves and learn because when you finally stumble across the solution it feels good that you crack the code yourself like we want all these cheat codes but it just feels cheap you know it's like cheat feels cheap like cheating does feel cheap like you you know if you look in the mirror like you didn't really like earn that right it's just just like easy money right it doesn't feel good it's not satisfying that like you came to the answer by somebody sort of like guiding you they're kind of like the um i don't know there's like bowling when they put the like the things up for the kids right they like kind of help guide the ball out of the gutter so they're like keeping you out of the gutter Mm -hmm. and moving towards the answer and the solution whatever that may be whatever the context is but um we are at an hour 22 okay so probably go for another 10 minutes um so yes you obviously have your earth angels they're it's almost like a timing thing, the way the journey works. But what was the final bit where you decided, what was the moment you decide, okay, I'm getting a divorce. I'm choosing to have a new life. Um, I didn't make the decision. <laughs> was the decision. Same as before, I got kicked out of the cult. I didn't make that choice. Another either. blessing in disguise, right? Totally. Yeah. Sometimes was, the universe does that. I was committed to the end. Um, like I, a lemming. Yeah. But also, you know, I kept that promise to myself that I would do everything that I could. You're going to go part. down with the ship. <laughs> you like, weren't going to hop off the Titanic. <laughs> By the way, the Titanic was built near where we live. Um, but no, I... But there was the thing, though, that that I proved to myself was that, you know, going back to somebody who had been unfaithful, going back into that situation, choosing to go back in that situation and doing everything that I could, you know, opening yourself back up again emotionally, physically, mentally, 
to be back in a marriage again after that's happened, that is not easy. That is a very hard thing to do. And I did it. And I did it willingly. And I forgave him. And I truly did it. And I remember... Um, I didn't know Jesus was a woman. <laughs> I also remember making the, the decision because I'd seen other people that had been through difficulties within their marriage and they used it as like a beating rod. You did this. You did that. Da, 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 da. And they kept bringing it yeah, back. Yeah, turn the table around. I could have done that. There's no way. So that's, you know... Yeah, it's, and like it wasn't easy, but I, I made the choice... I don't know when, but I may remember making a really clear choice that I was going to forgive and I was going to forgive completely. And if I could do that, then I'd go back in and, and do my best because I wasn't going to be that that woman with that major chip on her shoulder. And I wasn't going to cast it up and cast it up because it would eat at me and it would eat at them and it would just be game over and it would just destroy things anyway. So if there was any happiness, it wouldn't really be lasting. So... I went back in, I did absolutely everything I could. I was stronger emotionally than I ever thought I could be. And times when he broke down and he was very self-aware and he literally was crying, needing me to support him. And I'm thinking, you've put me through hell and now you still need more from me kind of thing. There was different points at that time. I was a bit like, this is getting a bit too much here. Um, but anyway, he, he called it and he was like, I can't do it anymore. And I was like, well, I can't walk away and I'm not going to leave this commitment. I said, I can't do it. And then eventually he was like, that's it. That's it. And uh, yeah, things rolled really quickly after that. You know, friends said, come stay with me. I stayed with her that evening when I moved in. Um, he was like sending me messages going, right, I want a divorce. I want you to divorce me on this grounds. I want you to divorce me on these reasons. Um, I want you to file for it like ASAP. Da, 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 da. Boom, it was quick. So I moved into my friends before Christmas. The actual divorce process took... It was done by the end of February. It was like... I, I want to say... I can't remember if it was 10 weeks or something. Anyway, it was crazy quick. Because I was physically handing the documents into the, the courthouse... Um, filling it in and it was all agreed and we just did it all ourselves it was frighteningly quick and I remember when it came through and I remember my friend thinking I would be pleased that you know the divorce came through and that was that was it and I remember just being so upset because it was like it's the end of something that had been really hard and I'd worked so hard and it the, the there's a sadness in the end even though it was going to be the start of a new beginning, there was a real sadness in that end and how it had happened. And, you know, t time working out past that, it took me quite a few years to really get over it and get over being a divorcee, being divorced. I felt so much shame. Um, I felt so much shame if people would find out. I, I was worried, you know, within the church environment as well, when things were breaking down within the marriage, because I felt like all these older ladies would be like, oh, she's so young and she hasn't really tried and they don't really know what they're doing. And I just felt like they were going to like judge me. And I, I felt bad that I thought that, but I just kind of thought they would think I was young and stupid. And they, they showed the opposite. They showed the opposite. They were so loving and understanding and really kind. And to show that level of love, not looking for information, not looking for details, but just showing true love and true acceptance. I saw that from so many people in my lives. Those are those angels that are there. No matter what hell that you've been through, 
that they can say that comforting word, the comforting touch, you know, whatever it is, they're angels here on earth. You know what I mean? They really, um, you know, for me, they're showing me how to do it. They're the role models that I didn't always have. My mom is an amazing role model. I love her. There's so many things that I still cherish about her and I even end up really being a lot like her. But there are also parts where she didn't look after me. You know, she didn't, you know, she did as much as she could, but she didn't make us safe. She couldn't make us safe. There were lots of different reasons why it was very difficult for her. Um, but ultimately, that's your first rule as a parent. Protect your child and keep them safe. Um, and, you know, all other things unfold from there. Um, and I couldn't really experience fully the other emotions until I felt safe. And yes, I'd been, I was out of those situations, but feeling safe within myself came a lot later. Whenever I was able to not live on stress hormones, whenever I was able to not constantly be in a state of worry. Um, I remember um, uh, there's a program called Smart Recovery, which is for um, like a, an addiction based program. Uh, started in England Viv was part of that Hydries and she was like Judith I want you to look through the books I want you to go through the first course and I was like right okay because she was like other people will be coming here and I just want you to be able to understand what they might be coming with and how to be able to support me within this and I was an RN and it was like evidently clear I was addicted to worrying that was actually my addiction I'd never had an other addiction it was worry and, you know, if things that started to go really well and really good for me, my brain would automatically think, what's going to happen next? It was waiting for impending doom all my life for such a long time. I didn't deserve happiness. That was the belief. I didn't deserve to be happy. I didn't deserve to be peaceful. I didn't deserve to um, have all these good things happen in my life. Like I just believed I didn't deserve it there were so many core things and there's been so many things that have helped us like the work I did with Viv she did with Havening work incredible technique basically helps to help your brain rewire itself and basically take you out of fight or flight whenever you've got moments where your brain just is hot wired into you know you've got those trigger points it basically takes that it burns away that pathway to make you go into that fight or flight situation whatever those triggers were in your in your brain that was an incredible shift, um, meeting you, being treated by the machine. You know, it's like there's so many different like tools that are out there that make a shift, that make a change. And you're like, oh, I don't need to live in a life of pain. I'd had chronic neck pain since I was small, you know, from a girl. And then different, you know, accidents and whiplash and different things. I just lived with constant pain in my neck. I didn't know any better. It got really bad later on when I was in the marriage. I was getting like... Um, spasms then after the marriage and then coming back to northern ireland the spasms were getting much much worse i'd got out of the routine of how i kind of managed it before and then you show up with your machine and it was like i never knew it could be that easy i never knew it could be that quick to get you out of pain and for it to last for it to actually last and make that difference do you mean because sometimes you, you give or you're given a diagnosis or you have an issue or you have this pain or whatever and it's chronic you just believe that's you for the rest of your days and you just have to manage it and you just get on with your life it just doesn't have to be that way 
I didn't have to live in unhappiness. I didn't have to live with a cloak of shame and guilt with all the stuff that I'd been through in my past. It's like I'd carried it long enough. And yes, I'd tried to get rid of it, but I didn't really know how to get to the fundamentals, to shift it mm. and to get rid of it. You know, and you've been a massive help with that. Double A's been a massive help with that. Viv's been a massive help with that. There's been so many things. Yeah, Dr. Beck, Dr. Carlos. Exactly. And it, it is, it's listening to your intuition. It's like listening and there's things that happen. They're not just coincidences. You know, God, the universe, greater, they're trying to go, like, try this, try this. Listen to those, they're there. Trust your instincts, trust your gut, and do it and try it. And it basically, it like, takes you up another level. And, it, you know, it's like almost like if you're going like, up steps of the ladder. Every time you go up a level, you can see a little bit more clearly. You can see a little bit more farther. You're not just still focused on that kind of one issue, that, that smaller problem. You were able to see a part of you know bigger part of the bigger picture. Um, yeah, and we'll get into that in uh, oh other episode. Another episode. Yeah, oh. I mean, yeah, the uh, is turning into a Netflix series. <laughs> I the never one. thought that Hangry and Horny would turn into <laughs> a, a series of Judy's life. <laughs> Which is uh, kind of what the uh, people, the people are speaking and they have spoken and they love you and they want you on and we will do this together to help others to be empowered to have this sermon above all because I told you it's not about like what I want it's also about what you want and if we can meld that together melt it together make it a grilled cheese sandwich a couple different cheeses it's all the better right so you know like i said how discernment critically think be open to possibilities but don't have a mind and a brain so open that it spills out of your skull you know that there isn't this black and white thing it's in technicolor mm. there's many shades of gray more than 50 shades <laughs> and um which by the way that actor i've never seen the movie but i heard that actor the male actor is from hollywood hollywood just yeah just up the road funny enough but um Folks, again, thank you so much for your love and support. Thanks, Judy Florial, for sharing your story of your heroin story, the 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 heroin journey, the ability to go through this life roller coaster, and to show that it's possible to heal and thrive. So, any final words, Judy Florial? Thrive is that key word. It was the word I remember a social worker writing in the paperwork, failure to thrive. That was me for such a long time. And I remember the shift and that changing um, and me making the choice. And I was like, I was determined to thrive. And I've been determined to thrive since the end of 2012. That's been a long old journey. But there's been so many beautiful things that have happened along the way 
and just trust trust in going forward trust in what you want you want that for a reason it's good to have what you want and it's good to have that aim and focus and focus on what's the positive because you'll discover all these different things along the way and it's worth it and it's a it's a beautiful journey with lots of twists and turns but there's treasure around you know every corner it's there for you and treasure in the cave absolutely Thank you, Judy Flow Real. Thank, Thank you. you, everybody, fans of Hangry and Horny. We love, love you. <laughs> and uh, have yourself an amazing, amazing day. Talk to y'all soon. Ciao for now. Thank you.